think we really need to roll back that idea that economics is going to save the world. So it's not the utilitarian notion that we might have of this is my land, how can I exploit it? You don't just do a tick box exercise and say, well, this is a sustainable solution to your problem. And so that's why we need to take uh, an integrated approach. Communities live integrated lives. Welcome to About SAS, a non-expert podcast seeking to illuminate the complex theme of sustainability. We do this by listening to researchers, practitioners and people worldwide from different disciplines, backgrounds and experiences working towards a sustainable future. My name is Marcela Ramos. I am a research fellow at the Sustainability IRT at the University of Glasgow. Today, I will present and discuss some key insights from three leaders, researchers and practitioners that approach sustainability using a critical lens. So sustainability to me um, is beyond the classic definition of, you know, meeting the needs of the current generations without compromising the needs of future generations. I want to go beyond that and talk about interconnections. So when we talk of sustainability, it's important for us to understand the various interconnections between society, ecology, economy, and the spaces in between. This is Deepa Pulanikati. In 2016, Deepa founded Abundance, a non-profit organization based in Malawi, South Africa. Abundance works towards creating better lives for humans and caring for nature. Those who have visited Malawi will say that it's a beautiful, beautiful country. Very green, lot of natural resources, tall trees, you know, rivers and lakes and fish and, you know, all, all kinds of this, this crops growing on the roadside. And it's, it's just a very beautiful, rich, um, uh, highly productive ecosystem. Okay. If you look at it in this, in the viewpoint of an environmentalist, it's a highly productive ecosystem. Yet it's also a very fragile ecosystem. Uh, there's only there's two seasons, the dry season and the wet season. So farming cannot be like you can't have multiple crops in a year. And then there's also storms and, and dry spells and droughts and floods. So that's also affecting this. Then you have the communities whose lives are dependent on these natural resources. They need they work off the land to produce uh, food for their families. They need uh, firewood in order to cook. You know, they go fishing and, and um, that's, that's how they have their livelihoods. Deepa and her colleagues at Abundance work with communities living in vulnerable contexts. Specifically, they adopted a village in the Matinga district in the south of Malawi. Many people ask us, okay, what is the focus area for abundance? And that's again, bringing us back to the siloed sectoral thinking. And I tell them, no, we don't have a focus area. We just do whatever the community wants us to do. This focus on what communities need or demand distinguishes Deepa's view of what it means to think sustainably when implementing interventions that seek to support community development. 
a key message from Deepa is that these programs seem to forget that communities live integrated, interlinked lives. So having worked with uh, communities in Malawi particularly, I've learned a lot about sustainability from them. Um, for example, I was working on a climate change adaptation project, which was focusing on a few sectors. Uh, so you have your um, environment sector. So we were doing quite a lot of tree planting, soil erosion control, uh, you know, conservation activities. And then we had the, the social aspects, the livelihoods uh, activities to enhance adaptive capacity of um, communities. So we were training them on conservation agriculture, the solar dryers, we were constructing solar dryers for drying crops and fish, income generation through environment-friendly ways for communities. The agenda was diverse and comprehensive, but Deepa soon realized that women were not participating as expected. We set up these uh, income generation pr projects for women um, and um, we found that women's participation was not very good. And when we went back to the communities to find out why the women were not participating fully, even though it's a very good project, um, they told us that they, they have too many children and you know, one after another very closely spaced, so they don't really have time to participate in climate change adaptation and income generation activities. And so they demanded that uh, we meet their needs for family planning. The demands from the community changed the initial objectives of abundance work. The experience shows deeper the disengagement that sometimes exists between the capacities theoretically considered relevant and the actual needs of the people to live a sustainable, empowered life. I've met women who have 10 children. This, these areas that we work with, the fertility levels are very high. So the fertility rate is like seven or eight in, in some of the, the districts that we work. And, and so if you have so many children, uh, obviously your health is affected. You have less time to do productive work, to generate income and so on. And therefore family planning is not a luxury. It's really a, a necessity for the women. And the moment they get access to it, they are empowered because then they can take decision. Uh, you know, they, they are in control of their bodies. They can decide when they want to have children. And that is uh, very empowering. And that is how you can uh, connect it with uh, how they will generate income um, in, in their life and improve their adaptive capacity. So, so that's what we learned uh, from Malawi that when you try to push like one, there are projects which are pushing say one technology or you know one solution so without understanding the whole um, aspects uh, of how communities live their life then i think we miss the point and and we don't really achieve sustainability from malawi we are moving to glasgow scotland where the cop26 climate change conference took place one year ago among the key discussions was the role of education in equipping everyone with the knowledge, skills, values and attitudes needed for urgent action to combat climate change. Mia Perry, professor at the University of Glasgow, believes that a central task of education is to engage with new systems of communication and knowledge to promote a more ethical and generous relationship with the world around us. 
we have the capacities to develop literacies to enable us to respond, make meaning from, and inform actions from non-human things. So for example, um, the, the visual representation of the health of a tree or a crop, or um, the, the movement or the behaviors of a certain species of animal, for example, the movement or behaviors of a coastline, the um, sensations and physical signs of a body, these things that are ineffable, that don't necessarily translate into linguistics. I believe that these kind of communication sign systems are at the root of what it will take for humans to live sustainably in a multi-species planet. Mia's research aims to develop new tools to explore and understand. This means moving away from the literacies of text to other ways of making sense of what happens around us. We need print text. It's a really powerful form of literacy to scaffold thought, to develop theory, to inform practice and to communicate across spaces and times. However, we also need other literacies. It's not sufficient, in my view, to designate literacies of water simply to scientists who are studying water security. It's something that is inherently important to all people who live in an interdependent relationship with water, for example. But why do we need new ways of creating meaning? And what is the relationship between these new literacies and the topic of sustainability? When we are teaching reading and writing and numeracy, we have a certain set of skills through which to communicate with the world. Um, and that is almost completely based and interdependent with other humans. It's a human literacy and language is a human construction um, and it enables us to work very well in a globally connected human environment. Um, what's missing from that, of course, is literacies that help us connect with beyond the human. And the climate crisis um, and the current environmental vulnerability is to do with um, the loss of sustainable habitat and biodiversity that's beyond human. We're not, we're not um, concerned about a loss of human input. We're concerned about a, a loss of a habitable place for humans, and that involves air, water, land, biodiversity, etc. So our literacy framework lacks the support for humans to sufficiently be able to make meaning and build relationship with the world that we are interdependent with. So from a sustainability perspective, I believe that it's critical and urgent that our literacies, education, um, includes more than language. Whereas Deepa proposes a more complex view of development and the deployment of sustainable capacities, Mia's approach to the concept of sustainability in education involves new forms of knowledge and making meaning which allow us to relate differently to the world around us. For example, when it comes to understanding, appreciating and caring for water. I was recently in a workshop um, where we were invited to go out in an urban, in the urban context of Glasgow, we were invited to go out into the city and identify a body of water and so we looked down deep under a drain covering on the street 
Um, and we were asked and invited to talk about what we understood about that water, what we knew about it. And I was standing with a group of researchers who are involved directly in water research in one way or another. And none of us could tell one another where this water might have come from, what might be in it, why it might be that color or where it might be going. And that to me was, you know, it was shameful, it was horrifying that un literally under the ground that we walk and reliably when we turn on a tap, there are systems of water going on around us that we are interdependent with. And yet we have absolutely no basic semiotic method to make meaning from the water that is presented to us in front of our eyes, under our feet. And those sorts of literacies are so fundamental. It's not a particular science. It's about what, what are the, you know, there were lots of signs. There was color, um, there was amount, there was volume, there was direction of travel. There was distance between the water and the road and the road and me, but not, nothing was I able to decode as I could if there was a label, if there was a printed label next to it, I could decode those signs and I could interpret from that. But from the actual water, I had no capacity. And these are the sorts of literacies that I think are really, really missing from our foundational lifelong learning and education systems. And exactly what, you know, that, that potential for literacies beyond text is what links the field of literacy with the field of sustainability. Jude Robinson is a social anthropologist. She approaches the concept of sustainability from the perspective of health and lives of vulnerable communities. So things that seem like common sense among the urban middle classes, such as not using plastic because it damages the environment, are not so evident to Jude, who has seen that plastic is central to water transport among communities in refugee camps in Uganda. Plastic in this context is an absolutely essential way of, um, it's light, it's fairly durable, it's affordable, um, and it's, it's available, it's freely available to people, it's within their budget. And so to this extent, I began to worry that sometimes dialogues around plastics were actually excluding some people and their voices and their views, and that these communities essentially could not afford to be green in the same way as some middle-class communities in the UK were talking about perhaps avoiding plastics or reducing plastic use. And I just became interested in that idea that there is a point at which plastics cannot be reduced at the moment in many resource limited settings. This way of approaching plastic considers health and hygienist social and cultural aspects. In complex contexts such as a refugee camp, water could mean not just washing your hands, but having a minimally dignified life in the eyes of others. Because we often think about it in quite a utilitarian sense of being clean is just something that, that keeps us healthy, it, it removes contagion, um, and therefore you know, the skin, the body is healthier. But actually what it meant to the people in Changwale in particular, and this we continue the research in another setting in, in Rwanda, in, in Gehembe camp, uh, there was that actually being clean was about personal self-esteem, about a sense of value and sense of self-worth. 
and social inclusion. And that actually being dirty didn't just mean that people wouldn't talk to you, they wouldn't approach you, they wouldn't include you, but your actual mental health, your actual feeling of self and self-worth would be damaged. And so they saw being clean and keeping clean and perhaps even having a change of dress or shoes as being absolutely essential to being able to engage, even with employment, being able to get a job, being able to um, go to church, meet your neighbour, whatever it was that was important to you, being clean was part of that. So if plastic is relevant, but at the same time environmentally harmful, what do we do to promote a sustainable future? How do we reconcile net zero goals and the needs of communities living in challenging contexts? In looking at um, what people were using to keep clean, uh, the, the different washing bowls, the, the water containers, the um, plastic buckets, and, and, and also what they were washing and, and how essential these items were, I think I really got an understanding of, of how it's important to make sure that there are just transitions is that removing these items from particular households would be quite devastating for them. We don't have ready-made alternatives, affordable alternatives to give to them. But also that there are ways of actually improving the plastics, there's ways of actually thinking about plastic differently that could really help benefit um, these communities. The logic of just transitions seek to consider the possibilities and restrictions of the diversity of communities. Furthermore, it challenges an underlying presumption that often crosses and potentially contaminates our work as researchers, the temptation of using one-size-fits-all approach lenses, as if they are one appropriate right solution. Different communities have different wants um, and they have different ideas about what is needed in a particular context. It's not for us to impose it on them. And so actually, you know, it's so important to listen and it's so important to make sure that um, you research with the community to make sure that you don't just do a tick box exercise and say, well, this is a sustainable solution to your problem. If it's not the solution that communities want and they're not involved in it and they feel alienated from it, then actually it's not a solution at all. It doesn't matter how environmentally friendly it is, it is simply not sustainable. And I I think that's, I think the real challenge for some researchers is to stop thinking it's all about the science um, and remembering how important it is to to make sure that people are in there and all of their complexity and all of their (laughs) wonderful ideas are actually reflected in in what's provided. And it may not be the technical solution that we'd have proposed, but actually it's a better one. In this first episode, we have presented three different views of sustainability and discussed ways of thinking sustainably. In episode two, we will move from concepts to practical experience. What does it mean to think sustainable regarding water and food production systems? Three researchers will help us to answer this question and bring in critical and provocative ideas that can help you enrich your approach to this concept. The beauty and trickiness of sustainability is that it can mean so many things and the idea of this podcast is to move between those meanings and understand the value of such differences. As if throughout the conversation we were using different spectacles. To see far, to see close, 
to see different colors and shapes. About Sass was produced in collaboration with Multiplied By and edited by Emilia Robinson. If you want to delve into some of the definitions, authors and approaches we have presented in this episode, please visit our webpage where you will find useful resources, documents and links. <music>